This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen, and for Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Foreshadows, and our author is Sharon Harp Gregory. Joining me from Idaho, Sharon. Hi, for you. Doing well. It's an ominous-looking cover on your book. Tell me the background and how you came up with this story. came up with the story around shortly after 9-11, because thinking about the the effect it had on everybody with the loss of all the people, even if you didn't know them, and our own personal losses of family, I began contemplating um, the parallels between our time and Noah's time and how it must have felt to Noah and his family to lose everyone, even the topographical type of world that they lived in. Everything was changed. I think that would be really uh, traumatic, and so I began to think about that. And um, then I also considered, in Matthew, Jesus said that, as in the days of Noah, so it would be in our end time. So I began to um, parallel the society and the depravity and the greed, um, the rejection of God, man's inhumanity to man during today, the same as back then. And that's basically where I came up with the idea. The back of your book gives this intriguing premise. What if our ancestors were far different than they've been depicted for several generations? What if they were of exquisite beauty and extreme intelligence, using 100% of their brains? Now, when I read that sentence, I knew this was a fiction. Uh, (laughs) Yes, but it might not have been a fiction back then, because God created Adam and Eve perfect. And it was only in the fall of man that we began to uh, degenerate. And they, I don't feel that the DNA had broken down that much yet. And they lived many, many more years. They lived like a thousand years back then. So, you know, they were able, think about what we're able to do in maybe a short span of our life, how much more they could do with that long time that they had. Yes, and would you consider this historical fiction? Because you do blend names from Scripture uh, along with, I'm assuming, their fictional names. Yes, I do consider it historical fiction based on a lot of biblical truth. What is the underlying story, the main premise for Foreshadows? The main premise? Yes. Is that man, left alone, becomes very evil and that God has hope for all of us in saving Noah and his family, and then that's why I called it foreshadows, foreshadowing things to come, that uh, Noah was a type of a savior, and as history has progressed, that Jesus ultimately was the ultimate savior, and that at the end, he will return and restore everything. So that was my main premise. Who, who's your main character in this in this novel? 
Well, Noah is actually the main character, him and his family, but I used a lot of other characters to... uh, I tried to depict just how deep the evil was at that time um, and the rejection of God and um, laughing at Noah, how, how hard that would be. It's, it's hard to have people ridicule you and, and treat you badly just because of what you believe. So I built up characters that depicted these different types of personalities that would reject what God had offered is safety in the ark. Is your focal point of the novel the building and construction of a gigantic, enormous boat craft that Noah was uh, was asked to construct? Yes, it's actually um, more toward the end, just before the flood, but it is, and it shows the effect it had on the, on mankind as he was preparing the ark and, and as God sent the animals to it. And uh, it just shows the tenacity, uh, the courageousness, the um, the love of God that Noah had, and obeying without even understanding what God told him to do. You have a character whose name is Hymenius. Mm-hmm. Talk about Hymenius for me a minute. Hymenius was um, one of Noah's nieces, and she was kidnapped by... Uh, her and all the other children in this one city were um, taken captive by the uh, the watchers or the Nephilim, the giants. And she has been made into, they took her and recruited her and, and created her into um, a woman that battled other women to the death. They called them the battle axes. And I have an excerpt here that um, of Hymenius when she faced an opponent and the thoughts that went through her heart, because um, it says, the roar of the crowd was deafening in her ears as she circled cautiously around her opponent, careful not to take her eyes off even the slightest movement, however insignificant it might be. Her heavily oiled muscular body glistened beneath the bright lights, her blonde hair sparkling with glittered gel that enhanced its stiff, short spikes, keeping it out of her line of vision. This was only her third skirmish, and she was already celebrated as a top contender of the battle axes. Suddenly, her adversary lunged for her with a shrill cry, battle cry while simultaneously swinging a bulky battle axe in a circular motion, aiming for her neck, jumping aside with the stealth of a cat. She, in turn, brought her own battle axe downward, catching her target in the top of the head. A look of surprised confusion distorted the defeated foe's face as she slumped slowly to the ground, where she lay motionless in a widening pool of her own blood, her eyes now staring sightlessly at the glaring overhead lights. Now that's scary. <laughs> there are a lot of really, really sad parts in here. I just really felt that it was important to just show just how far people had fallen. And then um, her final thoughts on that were, let's see, her ears rang as the thunderous noise in the auditorium swelled around her. But even as the multitude worshipped her, her thoughts were focused on the one she had slain. Turning slightly, she glanced sadly at the body, lying in a crumpled heap, blue eyes vacant of the sparkle of life, forgotten by all but the one who had brought her demise. 
memories flooded Hymenius's mind of a time that seemed to belong to someone else. Once, so long ago, Orsippus had been one of her closest friends, sharing secrets, going to Atlantis to worship the Legion of Gods, together with their parents, flirting with the sons of Adam, sharing dreams of what they would one day like to be. But that all ended somewhere in the nightmare that had begun, began an eternity ago and was never-ending. Turning away, she determined to never allow memories from the past to invade her thoughts again. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, if we didn't know any better, we would think that 224 pages is a scavenger hunt for lumber. So I, <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate your sharing that there's some action and some, some uh, exciting moments in this, in this novel that you've created. A lot. Sharon, I'm sure this is an intense read. Is there any one scene in here that you created in your imagination that you think would make an outstanding scene for a movie? Yes, there are several, but to tie it down, um, the one would be Hymenius, the one I just did, but um, when the animals began coming to the ark and the people were all around harassing Noah and, and making fun of it, and, and um, uh, also there was uh, Marnie, who is also one of Noah's relatives. Obviously, they were all pretty closely related. And um, she actually uh, despised Noah. And so in order to hurt him, she uh, participated in the murder of her grandmother and her aunt. And the thoughts that she thought as she afterwards, thinking that she was going to feel revenge, that it was going to help her to feel better about herself, she was in disbelief because she said she found to her disbelief as she watched the light of life ebb from their eyes, not only surprise in them, but their soft whispers of forgiveness and love towards her. Her brow furrowed deeply as she was disturbed by these thoughts that threatened to invade her private realm of satisfaction. She had waited too long for this day to have it spoiled by their weird reactions towards her betrayal. In a weak attempt to dismiss the disturbing effect it had on her, she consoled herself that they had always been strange. At some point, as she followed Judas on the escape route, Marnie became painfully aware somewhere deep in her soul of a hollow emptiness as the adrenaline rush subsided. Instead of release from her torment, guilt stronger than her past, all of her past demons began to take root. So there are a lot of heart motives and contemplations that I put in here. Yeah, I think there's some possibilities. Sure, I've had several people tell me it should be a movie. (laughs) Well, there was a series called Dark Shadows. Why not Foreshadows? (laughs) That's right. Had um, people tell me that I've had a few people read it to tell me what they thought, and they told me it was suspense, suspenseful and riveting, shocking, eye-opening, and that the characters were authentic and realistic, and they found it very appealing because it was so unexpected. Expect that out of this book. Yes, and who is your audience? Who do you think is going to enjoy reading this? All kinds of people. Uh, Fifteen years old and up. My little seven-year-old granddaughter read it, and I said, well, honey, are you understanding it? And she goes, no, but I'm reading it. <laughs> but um, That would be a captive uh, audience. audience. What's that? That would be a captive audience. <laughs> yes, it was so cute. But... Um, I have had people, uh, many people, 
Christians and non-Christians that several that have read it that came to me and said they absolutely loved it and they bought it for their friends. Well, that's that's a great uh, recommendation on its own merits. You mentioned giants are part of the background information that's in the book. There have been archaeological discoveries of people who appear to be giants in stature on this earth. Uh, so it's a very contemporary fact, isn't it? Yes, and there's a lot of things that I have put in my book that I have derived from reading lots of archaeological things through the years because I love archaeology. It's fascinating to me. And so I kind of just incorporated those things in. In a sentence or two, introduce your book to someone. I would highly recommend you to read it for just an enjoyable read. And hopefully, in reading this, it will make you think about our past a whole lot differently. And also that it would, if there are any questions you have about God, that it would help you to want to discover more. And this book, although it's written from a Christian perspective, is not an evangelical study book. It's actually a book of entertainment with a Christian message or foundation. That's right. What was challenging about putting this book together? Finding the time. (laughs) It was very challenging to do that. Um, Keeping my characters uh, real, I had a lot of fun with that, making up these characters, and it comes from having an imagination gone wild, I guess. But uh, it was challenging to pull it all together, but with God's help, I did. (laughs) Well, beautiful job. In the front of the book, just for the listener's sake, uh, you have outlined the name of the main characters and uh, the geographical locations so that they can have a better handle on what the story is about and where it takes place, which is a great idea. Where can we get copies of your book? Well, you can go to authorhouse.com or um, even uh, amazon.com. You can buy it through any bookstore. I am working on having it on the shelves. They can order it through bookstores right now, or they can buy them directly from me. Excellent. And is there a possibility of a, uh, of a sequel to Foreshadows? There could be. I've considered that. I know I have many other books in the works. But um, the sequel to this one is still in my head. Thank you for sharing the background and the information and how you came to be an author of the book Foreshadows. Our author, again, is Sharon Harp Gregory. Thank you, Sharon, for joining me today. Thank you, and I really have appreciated this time. Thank you, Sharon, for visiting with us today. For Author House and for Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere 
to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Armed Forces, Instrument of Peace, Strength, Development, and Prosperity. And the author is Joseph Babatundi Fagolingbo, and he joins us now from West Central Africa. Hello, Joseph. Great to have you with us. And your book is based on a lot of years of experience in the military. Why don't you first tell us about your background? Uh my background, I, I have a first degree in agric engineering and uh, a second degree in water resources and engineering from Amadou Bello University, Nigeria. The first degree was from the University of Ife, now Abafin Dawulo University. I work as a lecturer uh, in Federal Polytechnic Adiquity, again at the National Water Resources Institute in Kaduna, uh, from where we are retired. Then I had the contract appointment with the Nigerian Defense Academy from 2000 to 2010. I was head of department, civil engineering for uh, three years. And uh, I served in several committees relating to uh, defense activities. My activities actually was involved in, I, I was involved in selection of uh, candidates for training and they trained for five years and uh, commissioned officers. Uh, during the period I was <coughs> involved in development of uh, short courses in security and defense matters. Short courses aside from the regular training programs for the national for the uh, uh, military officers. <clears throat> and then I served also in various committees like the uh, military science and technology committee, uh, center for computer aided design and information technology when they were to start to, to start it. Then I was, I took part in the workshop in operations research, in research. And then I was also uh, the coordinator of the Critic Industrial Development Scheme. Uh, it is a scheme by which we expose them to industrial practices. Uh, it is for cadets in the fourth year in their fourth year. Uh, we spend six months, and then we have sandwich programs during the uh, long, during the, uh, what looks like long vacation, which is just mainly about four weeks uh, each each session. And then I also was, uh, I saw also in the uh, research monitoring committee of the Faculty of Engineering, and then I was also in, involved in development of academic programs. 
you see a real need to harness the resources of the armed forces that will really, really give strength to a nation. Yeah. Why? Why help us understand more fully? Uh, is this are these untapped, as we would say, untapped resources for the most part in most countries? Uh, yes, in Africa, our military forces, armed forces, they are largely unutilized. And these are young children. They, 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 are, they are admitted between the ages of, generally between the ages of 18 and 20. Those of them who have their early education first coming at about 16, 17. And those who came, who are, whose education are a bit, to be slow, coming at about 22. These are crops of young men, and these days now we have included women in the training programs. These are crops of young men who are about the, because the selection process, in Nigeria, the selection process, we take the best academically, and then we, we subject them to health examination, and they are the healthy ones. And they are, and then we, 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 we spend a lot of money training them. When you see the facilities through which, which, with which they are trained, you cannot compare with what happens in the conventional universities. For these boys, they get out, and they are largely unutilized. You see examples of some of the developments that were carried out by some of these uh, military officers. They are not utilized. For instance, let us take electronic voting machine. We bought an electronic voting machine into Nigeria. But a military officer had decided one as far back as the 1970s, which never saw the light of the day. So this is why we now see, and then in research, the facilities are there for the, at the Nigerian Defense Academy, for, for example. We have facilities. But researches are not going on because we do not have cooperation with the conventional universities to come in. Of recent, they, they, they bring in, they, them in as associate, I mean, as visiting uh, professors. But they are not really involved in research. And then we see that these uh, facilities that are made available to these young men are not actually being utilized in economic development programs. And this affects most developing countries, particularly Africa, except a few countries in Asia, like Pakistan, India, Malaysia. So this is why I looked at it, I said, well, let us bring this out. Let us, let us see what happens in developing countries, I mean developed countries. When you get to developed countries, you find that they work hand in hand with research establishments. They are involved in research. For instance, the, the U.S. Army is involved seriously even in water resources development. But in Nigeria, it is not so. We only use them for uh, peacekeeping. I think that is about all. Occasionally, we drive them for uh, security forces cases within the country. How important would you say it is for the things that you're talking about, that you're writing about, how important it is for lawmakers, policymakers, chief executives of government agencies to 
to really uh, dig into the things that you're advocating and, you know, for the benefit of, of, the, of the nation. Okay. Uh, the lawmakers that are involved in policy. Now, without appropriate policy, it might be difficult for us to get involved. We need policy backing for us to be able to get um, ensure that this uh, crop of young men and women, uh, their, their talents are utilized. Uh, that is um, as far as lawmakers are concerned. Uh, because we recognize, the, the lawmakers recognize the need to actively involve armed forces personnel in research and development, in disaster management. And they will make appropriate laws that will engage them in productive ventures. Uh, funding for them will become will be more adequate and be channeled to economic development. Right, they, will, they, will, they, will, they also will face challenges. They will face defeat challenges. The few of them that are actually involved in Nigeria that get that they get involved, they, 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 are, they want to portray, they want, they, they want to see that they are, developed, they are doing such, some, some things. We have quite a few of them that are distressed about uh, social development. Then, um, for, let's say, look at two executives of government agencies. They will consider armed forces resources as usable uh, tools for success stories of their establishments. Uh, for, for instance, Nigerian Defense Academy has a meteorological observation station in Kaduna. There is only one agency that has a meteorological uh, observation station. That is the civil aviation in Kaduna. The water boards do not have, does not have. The National Water Resources Institute itself, which is supposed to be a research organization, does not have. And many people do not know that this facility, uh, this data is available at the Nigerian Defense Academy. I was not aware of that until I, I worked with them. So, you see, police, I mean, two executives of establishments, once they know that such facilities are available and that they can, they can assess it, they will feel committed to get them involved in research. But when we look at uh, uh, private establishments, they are likely to look beyond looking for contract awards with the military. They can get them involved in research and development. For instance, you have you have a company that should that's supposed to have a research base, and you say, well, if you get to the uh, the universities, they will not attend to you. They will not do this, which is which is actually not not true anyway. But you can get military guys involved in research for this for the agencies. So and then uh, military establishments also will look towards cooperating with the universities and the uh, technical institutes and research institutes for their own development progress have a, a process as it operates in the U.S., in Canada, in Japan, and other places. So this is one of the reasons why these are the reasons why we believe that 
such a such uh, establishments, I mean, who utilize this book, read through it, and see how they themselves can get uh, involved in the national development pro projects involving the military where we have facilities. The facilities are there for them, with them. If the armed forces get so involved in socio-economic and technological development programs of any nation, uh, don't you think that the government of such a nation is in danger of being toppled by the military? They, they won't be toppled by the military. Let me tell you frankly, uh, when we were growing up, that one of the reasons why I learned the United was that it wasn't for money. It was because I felt people like Habat Macaulay made contributions to Nigeria. And I wanted to make contributions. So, and when you, when you look at uh, most young men, once you are actively involved in activities that you have, uh, you, you have, you, you'll be proud of the output. You scarcely talk about gov governance. What concerns, what, what concerns with, uh, with governance. I remembered one of my lecturers when I was in my first year in the university. He was working, he was, he was in the U.S. before he moved to, uh, before he was moved to uh, Bartholomew Aguilar University. And before the end of the year, there was a project he was on in the U.S. And then that project had a breakthrough. He felt completely devastated and returned, went back to the U.S. He was not interested in the money that was, that, that was being paid for, to him here. He was more interested in getting, being part of the development process. The, the U.S. Army, for, for instance, do they get involved? Do they topple government governance? If governance is good, they don't have time, such time. They are more committed. They are more committed to their own programs. That project they are seeing. I till today, I am not, I'm not, uh, my, my interest is not in money. My interest in making impact in society. For instance, when I started looking at this book, I said, look, how can we help developing nations too? How can we get them to be aware of the fact that once, uh, I mean, the, the resources are available at these places, the material resources are there, the human resources are there, where are we wasting them? I would be very happy to see uh, development going on uh, across the world. There, there should be competition. And then we'll be able to, to, to work together at par, not uh, trailing behind the develop, developed nations. Uh, for, for instance, is one of the reasons why I even developed uh, a website that is that is committed to civil military relations and entrepreneurship. So it is not the, 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 most of these young men, it is, they get involved because they are not actually, they, they have not, nothing doing. What they do is the evening go and take a pursuit with the money, do exercises, and besides that, nothing. Those of them who are, you know, who are contract awarding, uh, sectors. They are what contract. That is all. So if this continues, then they will be interested in governance. 
They'll be interested there to go there and loot money and do all sorts of things. Any little excuse. But when we commit our young men and our young men, we ourselves in governance will be committed to good governance. The title of the book, The Armed Forces, Instrument of Peace, Strength, Development, and Prosperity, and we've been listening to the author from West Central Africa, Joseph Babatundi Fagoyingbo. Joseph, tell us how we can get your book. How do we order your book? Uh, the book is uh, with uh, Author House, uh, Author House Publishers. Uh, I do not have... Um, yeah, you can go to author, uh, it, it, yes, authorhouse.com, right. Yes, authorhouse publishers. Very good. And everyone can, I'm sure, go to any of the online retailers like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and you can order yes. Joseph's book. And then to even be in the uh, you, you, I mean, uh, UK Expo in March and the uh, uh, New York Expo in April. Very good. Well, thank you, Joseph. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Jungle Rescue, and the author is Jeffrey Gilbert, and Jeffrey joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, good afternoon, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us all the way from Grenada. How's the weather today? Oh, the weather is excellent. It's, um, it's a bit humid today, but... Generally, we have very, very good weather. Well, we're all freezing here in the States, so I'm glad somebody's warm. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very warm. And, and talk about warm. This book of yours, Jungle Rescue, uh, it's uh, much more than warm. We're talking about a thriller. We're, you really are uh, writing a story to really heat things up, aren't you? Most definitely. Well, let me read a little bit about this. In, in your words, you say this, follow the quest of a retired United States Navy SEAL as he goes on the trail of a kidnapped American exchange student. Read Jungle Rescue for more riveting drama as the action reaches a fever pitch. Let me say that again. That's why we edit. <clears throat> 
Read Jungle Rescue for more riveting drama as the action reaches a fever-pitched crescendo near the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. So you're taking us into the badlands of Colombia. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I, I would actually not say the Badlands, but I would just say Colombia. You know, we have to get both sides. Yes. Well, there is, as we know, a lot of uh, drug traffic that comes out of that part of the world, and I'm sure there's something to do with uh, illegal drugs and all of this. And <laughs> You are right about this, but um, actually the, the, the book Jungle Rescue seeks to dispel a lot of this kind of feeling that Colombia is just about drugs. It is certainly not. It is an awesome and beautiful country. And uh, if you read Jungle Rescue, you can see and understand a lot more about the country. It is not just the bad things you hear. There is a lot of good things that you don't hear. And Jungle Rescue makes an effort to depict a lot of the positive things about this country. So you take us into the jungle because that's where Christina Preston is being held. Is that right? Yes, an American exchange student. Yes. Well, before we get into some more of the details of the plot and more of the characters, tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book, Jeffrey. Well, actually, um, again, Jeffrey Gilbert, I'm from the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, a very beautiful country. Um, my background basically is in banking. I've been a career banker. I worked for a large financial institution for well over 27 years. Um, in addition to that, I have some experience in the private sector. I retired from banking in June of 2012, and having retired, I just decided, you know what, I need to do something else. I'm not just going to sit home and just lay over and get rusty. I decided to take my writing into a professional level. I've always been writing. Um, my teachers at school always felt that I had a knack for creativity. And I, I won many short story competitions. I, I, I did very well. I excelled in, in, in that area. And um, it actually gave me the, the, the drive. I, if you read a little bit what I said before, is the fact that I grew up in a very poor and rural community. And reading gave me an opportunity to reach out, to enjoy other things, to see other parts of the world. Right? In my time, there was no electricity. There was, we had, very, we had little, little or no facilities. So at night, I, you know, I read by candlelight. I read by the use of a kerosene lamp. And I used my ability to read and to, 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 to understand certain things to widen my knowledge. And um, every day I kept saying to myself, you know what, um, you know, reading is such fun. It's such an, an awesome opportunity to learn things. One day I would want to see my work in print. And this basically was the genesis of me starting to write. I mean, another part I would like to speak about is the fact that on my, on my way to school, there was this little bookstore, and uh, the store owner knew that I loved reading, and we had no money to purchase books. So she gave me an opportunity to come to the store every day, and I would read chapters of a selected book. And there are times by the end of a week, I would have read three, four, even five books. So that, again is one of the things that I would like to really refer to in terms of what really gave me the drive and the motivation to be a writer. So I, I, I just, you know, I've always been very passionate about reading, about writing, about literary works in general. And um, again, that is basically the, the genesis of my starting to write professionally. 
Well, your humble humble beginnings are much different than Christina's uh, home oh, life yeah. and her family life, since her father is a Texas billionaire. This guy is looted. <laughs> but she has to run off. Why does she run off to Columbia? What's what's uh, you know what's in Again, it? What is she looking do, for? If you look at the the the, the um, about the about the book section, it speaks about um, Christina in the youthful passion and defiance. Christina wanted to do you know to study. She 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 had a passion for the environment. She wanted to be a scientist, so she wanted to research. And she felt you know what I need to go out there and have a life of my own. My dad is 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 very wealthy. Her mom passed away, and she wants to have a life of her own. She just she just doesn't want to be daddy's little girl. She wants to go out there and find you know things that the youth would really want to do. So she chose Colombia, and again she chose Colombia against the wishes of her dad, because he was adamant that she should not go to Colombia. The country is, is it's not the best place for her to be at that time, but again, being youthful, being passionate, being defiant, she wanted to go there. And of course, well, the story unfolds. She went there, and unfortunately, she got into a situation where she was kidnapped. So tell us about John Bradley. Oh, Bradley, yes. Bradley is, is he is, the protagonist in the book, and he is the guy hired by her father, Mike Preston. Bradley is a retired United States Navy SEAL, and of course, like you know the story of the Navy SEALs, and SEALs in general. Um, Bradley spoke with Preston, and um, in the conversation, Preston actually related to him what has happened. You know, here's a guy who's filthy rich, he has everything. But the one thing he really, really loves and he wants to have close to him, he cannot have it, and that's his daughter. Because his daughter is somewhere out there in the jungles, and she's held by insurgents. And as any caring father, you'd expect him to do whatever, he, do whatever is possible to ensure that his daughter gets home. He hires badly. He pays him a lot of money and says, look, guy, you don't worry. I'm going to bring your daughter back. And badly heads to Colombia. You know, he heads taking the trip from Venezuela, travels all the way from Boca de Camarones, and he lands smack into Santa Marta, Santa Marta, the historic capital of Magdalena in Colombia. He lands there, and he decides, you know what, I have a gut feeling this is going to be where I'm going to get the first clue to find Christina. Out of the blue, he pops into a nightclub. He's there having a good time, having fun, and while he's there, Someone walks up to him and be the man he wanted to dance. And he asked her for a dance and he started dancing. And of course, well, one thing led to the other. They started chatting. And at the end of it, this woman he was dancing with, she was dancing with Sergeant Gabriela Hernandez. And Gabriela Hernandez was attached to the Santa Marta Police Department. And by some strange twist, she is the person working on Christina's case. So I mean, just out of the blue, he got this, the, the, you know, this inner feeling that you know tonight I'm going to find a clue, and there it was, and this was the beginning of the relationship. This was the beginning of him taking steps to find Christina. Christina, uh, probably to uh, most fathers, uh, to um, most. Uh, bystanders that would witness something like this um, might not think what Christina literally turns into. I mean, this girl 
uh, really takes, she's a take charge kind of girl. Oh, most, most definitely. And, and, and that, again, is, is part of the story of Jungle Rescue. As I said, it's a story of defense and triumph of the human spirit. That no matter what the, the, the situation, no matter how difficult and, and, and adverse that situation is, if you're a strong fighter, because if you go through the pages, you're, you're, you're going to see that Christina didn't just lay back and die. She stumbled on a cashier of weapons in the jungle, right? I mean, she was blasting away with her AK-47. She was not just sitting back and saying, hey, guys, I'm going to wait for you to kill me. She was really, really kicking some, she was kicking some butt. <laughs> she actually did that, you know? Yes. Well, uh, this story obviously has all the, all the, uh, different types of materials to just turn it into uh, quite a thriller and uh, it's that type of type of story that we would expect to see on the big screen. I am extremely confident that before before you end, as a matter of fact, I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to get a call this month or maybe next month, okay, I'm going to get a book to screen adaptation. I'm extremely confident and when I do get it, I'm not saying if, when I do get it, one of the things that I'm really, really pushing for is that some of the footage be shot in my beautiful homeland, Grenada, because we have a similar kind of terrain, a similar footage. The, the, the you know the mountain and the mountainous and rugged terrain, we have that right here back home. So I'll be asking the producers. I need some of the footage be shot in my beautiful Spanish country. And of course, like all thrillers, there's all kinds of twists. And yours, we would have to call it a sinister twist. Yes, it is definitely <laughs> a sinister twist. It's a very sinister twist. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to, to elaborate a little bit on this. No, I don't think we, you know, we'll just kind of leave that dangling out there yes, for people yes. to uh, ponder, to ponder uh, what, what it's about. But as we speak, you're working on another book. Yes, I am working on another book. Um, I'm not sure if I want to reveal the title of it now. Because okay. what I do is, uh, I mean, start a book. I start a book. And I would start with a particular title, but usually by the time I get to the middle or to the end, I would change the title. Sure. So because the one that I'm working on right now, I've, I've made my third change to the title, but I think I'm going to stick with it. I can just give you a little, a little gist. Is this a sequel or entirely different? No, no, no. It's not going to be a sequel. I, I would do a sequel to Jungle Rescue later on, mm -hmm. later on, probably early, early, early next year or the latter part of this year. Mm-hmm. But the one that I'm working on right now is a similar, is a novel filled with intrigue and espionage, and it's along the lines of a. It has it has a a, a touch of well, I'm sure you'd have you know you must have heard or read a lot of Robert Ludlum's books. Um, it has a touch of that. Um, a lot of it is going to be based in Russia. A lot of it is going to be a lot of the scenes would be in the on the Arabian Peninsula, and a lot of it is going to be in Washington, D.C. So that gives you an ho a whole idea as, as to you know, what exactly I'm talking about. A lot of espionage, a lot of terrorism, some piracy, really, really action-packed. Right. Well, it is part of reality, reality today, and obviously uh, your plots fit right in with uh, what's in the news, and you've of course, of course, given definitely. it a, a, a real, uh, just a fantastic treatment that could go all the way to the big screen. So, uh, Jeffrey, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get me um, on Amazon. You can get me on Amazon bookstores. I'm on Barnes & Noble, and I'm at Author House. 
and you can reach me my website www.joffreygilbert.com so it's www.joffreygilbert.com um, my mobile number area code 1473-449-7983 and my email joffgilbert59 at gmail.com so you can reach me anytime thank you so much Jeffrey for being with us on Author Talk it was really a pleasure and I hope the next time we're speaking we'll be talking about uh, the book to screen adaptation that sounds like a good plan thank you thank you too and I hope to hear from you soon <laughs>